Good morning. Please stay standing for the scripture this morning. I'm Mindy. This is from Philippians 2, 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among you, whom, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm very clumsy. That would... Tiny cable could certainly face plant me off this stage if I'm not careful. It's good to be with you all. Um, I, I want to open, open with a question, as we do many times, which is this. It's a broad one. What does the world need? Jesus! <laughs> That's the right answer. That's the right answer. Uh, for many of us, um, that's the answer that immediately and quickly comes to mind. For many of us, uh, maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe something else falls in there. But I, I, I would, the, the reason I ask that question is because the world is at least two things. Uh, it, it's beautiful. The world is beautiful. God cares about the world. God made the world. God loves the world. And it's falling apart. And it's falling apart. In our world at large, and there's not a clean distinction between these categories of things, but in our world, um, we just came out of the bloodiest century in human history. Did you know that? Bloodiest, bloodiest century in human history. We just, we just lived through it. Um, we, we live uh, a few decades uh, for the first time in human history where uh, we as people have the capacity to actually end all life as we know it on this planet, thanks to the atomic bomb. Things go wrong, everything up in the air. Um, violence and oppression flourish everywhere. The internet is destroying our attention spans, our perceptions of truth, our sexual health, our ability to engage in real world, in the real world and the people in front of us, to name only a few things. In our country, and this is just my assessment, feel free to disagree with me, this isn't gospel, but I believe we have two fundamentally unserious political parties racing each other to embrace their versions of dangerous authoritarianism. Children are being cruelly experimented on in the name of radical gender ideology. Irresponsible economic policies bearing predictable fruit in the form of historic inflation. Increasingly fractured and contradictory views of how to understand the nature of humanity, the, the mere possibility of ethics and morality, and the desire to even hear, let alone understand, let alone love, people who think differently. You turn on the news and you hear another story like the kidnapping and murder of Eliza Fletcher, evil striking her while she's on her typical morning run. In our city, here, we, we're once again on track for the most shootings and gun deaths in recorded history. Did you know that? Drug abuse and mental illness abound. Neighbors have been given over to inhumane conditions with an inescapable crisis around people living on the streets. So, 
that's a, that's a tiny, tiny window into the types of things that ail our world. And it all raises the question, what does this world need? What does it need? It needs something. I don't think you'd find a single person anywhere who would say that, that the world isn't in need of something. The Christian answer, of course, the Christian answer, of course, is for Jesus Christ to come and put all things right. There's a longing inside of us that, that just one day all this stuff will end. It will be put right by the only one who can do it. The only one with the power to do it, the only one with the wisdom to do it, the only one with the complete knowledge to do it, the only one with the authority to do it, the only one with the fundamental goodness to do it. And praise God, he promises he's going to do that. He's going to. That's one of the reasons, I suspect, if you're a Christian, that you are a Christian, is that, that hope that he will, in fact, do that. So thankfully, he will, and we are right to long for that day. We are right to long for the day when we see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, trumpets blaring, the true King arrived, where every hint of sin and evil and injustice and death is put outside the city walls. That is a day we long for, we are right to long for. But what about right now? What about right now? What about this age? What about this age? What about for my friends that I care about, that live in this city, or my family, or, or, or my neighbors who are living right now? Well, we also, we also rightly long for Jesus to bring a measure of truth and beauty and goodness into this world in the here and now, don't we? We know that it's not coming in full till someday later on. It might be sooner than we think. We just don't know. But we long for some of it, a taste of it right now. We long to see his kingdom life tasted and previewed. And thankfully, he promises to do that too. He promises to do that too. But how he promises to do that is actually pretty surprising. We, you, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, empowered by his Holy Spirit, are meant to be his hands and feet until he returns. Did you know that? We are empowered by his Holy Spirit to be his hands and feet until he returns. And yes, he can and does act supernaturally and powerfully in the world. That's not discounting that. But if you read the New Testament, the emphasis seems to be on his people, once again, picking up similar to that task in Eden, ruling underneath him and being an extension of his will to put the world to rights. And we're not going to bring it all in full in the here and now. Just acknowledge it. But nonetheless, that is part of our task in the here and now. Last week, last week we talked about how there's just there's this growing sense amongst our community, vocalized by many of you, that, that this season right now marks kind of a time or of, of rebooting, um, of a fresh start, of an opportunity for a fresh commitment as a church to, to, to living out these central identities that God has given us. Um, in these things, we are making a call. I am making a call as one of your pastors, one of your elders, by the grace of God to try to move from survival to flourishing, from safety to sacrifice, from cautious to bold, from casual to committed. Last week, we talked about the identity of family, 
like the, the chief metaphor for the people of God in the New Testament is that of a family of brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers together supplying for one another's needs. Again, being the hands and feet of Jesus in tangible ways to one another. Living out those 61 beautiful one another's that the New Testament calls us to and plus, plus more. That the call then is to, is to the kind of investment and presence and consistency that seizes the opportunities we have before us to build this kind of community and kind of individual relationships with Jesus that he envisions for his people. So if last week was about the identity of family, a kind of a call to freshly prioritize that, this week I want to challenge us, it's time to recommit to our identity as learners, as learners. Um, to take our sanctif- these are all broadly and generally synonymous terms, our sanctification, use a theological term, our maturity, our spiritual formation seriously. This is the task that brings a sense of thickness to the good news in the here and now. As we eagerly await the fullness that Jesus is bringing, where we actually become people of the good news, living out from a vital connection with God, able to be his hands and feet. Amen? So, let's pray. Let's pray and invite the Spirit's influence here, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we, once again, we just thank you. I just thank you for this opportunity to be here together with these people, Lord. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the, the bottomless well of wisdom that it is, and, and inspiration, and beauty, and truth. Lord, we thank you for what you've called us to and the the beautiful vision that you have for for life in your family, Lord. And we just ask today, as we we come under your word again, Lord, that you would use it, Lord, that it wouldn't fall on deaf ears, but, but that you would use it to build deeply into us all that you envision. Holy Spirit, fill us. We we ask you to fill us right now. Make your presence known. Bear your fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mindy read for us Philippians 2, 12 through 16. I'll I'll read it one more time. Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, we, hear, we get a sense there of Paul's love for this community, his love for them, his history with them, that he's been with them previously. And now that he's gone, this, this call to do what? To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So I want to take, this, take, take three ideas from here. Three ideas I think are the kind of three main ideas of this passage. The first is this call, this call in verse 12 to live out your salvation, to work out your salvation. That might be a little, sound a little weird, especially if you're from a more reformed branch of Christianity, which probably most of us are more than any other branch of Christianity. 
You hear, work out your salvation, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds an awful lot like work salvation, doesn't it? Let's back up and define salvation for a second. Just the word, the word in English, according to Oxford, salvation just means preservation or deliverance from harm or ruin or loss. That's a good definition. Preservation or deliverance from some bad outcome. Theologically, we would say that salvation is God's action in Christ primarily to rescue his people from the consequences of their sin, including that the just judgment of God, because God is just, he can't just turn a blind eye to evil and injustice in the world. He's going to do something about it. And that means for us, he's got to do something about us, doesn't he? So the just judgment of God, eternal separation from God, death, and the rest of the destructive fruits of a life lived in rejection of God's wisdom and guidance. Theologian John Frame says salvation addresses our guilt, our punishment, and our corruption that follow our sin. I think that's helpful. So God saves us from many things. We all need to be saved. We need to be saved. We cannot save ourselves. And thankfully, God saves us from those things. He was not content to leave us in those things. But it's not just that he saves us from things. He saves us to things as well, to many things, including intimacy with him. If a consequence of sin is fractured and shame-filled and guilt-filled and disoriented and distanced relationship with the God of the universe, the result of his saving work is intimacy, fellowship, belovedness with the God of the universe. More than that, eternal and abundant and flourishing life. All the opposites of death. More than that, a place in his family and in his kingdom that can never be taken away. And more than that, love and freedom and purpose and truth and beauty and goodness. He saves us to all these things and many more. Praise God. So the scriptures declare that salvation, the saving, it's God's work. We cannot and we do not save ourselves. And if you're trying right now, I just, I tell you, stop, stop. You won't. It can't be done. We don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes. We cannot and do not save ourselves. We simply receive what Jesus has done for us as a free gift in the language of the scriptures, a free gift of grace that we grab hold of through, you pick your word, faith, belief, trust, just grabbing hold of these promises and say, yes, I, I want those. I want you, God. Save me. That's it. That's it. I love the phrasing that's developed out of the Reformed tradition. I use it often. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. I believe that is a very, very good summary of what the Scripture teaches. So, none of the rest of what we're going to say here is, it makes sense until we, we grasp that reality. Salvation comes by His grace through faith in Christ. And the question for right now is this, have you grasped this? Do you understand that that is how God works, that you don't have to do, lift a finger for him to love you, for him to save you? You cannot contribute one iota to what he's done to save you. Not only have you grasped it, have you trusted him? 
just understood that intellectually. You read it in a book somewhere. You maybe journaled it or whatever, but you've said, yes, Jesus, I receive. I receive what you've done for me. We continue. I think, I think that the systematic theologians help us a lot here when they speak of salvation in terms of uh, really, really three tenses. You can think of salvation as, as a past tense reality, uh, both in terms of what, how Jesus bought our salvation. It happened in the past, about 2,000 years ago. He died on a Roman cross. That was in the past. It's happened once for all. It's not gonna, he's not going to do it again. Salvation was purchased. But also, you can think of it in, in terms of the past of your own life whenever you trusted Jesus. Whenever that was, a year ago, a week ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever you trusted Jesus, uh, we could use the language of the theologians to say you were justified, you were declared righteous by him. He said, everything you need for salvation, I've granted it to you right here. In my sight, you are perfect and without blemish because of what Christ has done. That happened in the past. But we can also speak of salvation as a present reality, and I think the theological concept that best maps onto that is sanctification, this idea that God isn't content to just leave us, like, broken and messed up. And I mean, we're all going to be broken and messed up and sinful to one degree or another in this life, but his goal is to move you forward out of that unhealth into deeper and deeper and deeper health. If we'll let it. If we'll let it. It's to be formed into the likeness of Christ. It's to be changed. That's sanctification. That's a present and ongoing reality of your salvation. It's happening right now. And then finally, there's a future reality. We can speak of salvation as yet to come in that we are waiting for Jesus. What we already talked about, Jesus to come back, put all things right. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Everything evil is going to be done away with. It will all become more and more and more and more distant past. So we're waiting for that, like the resurrection, the glorification of God's people. That is yet to come. So you can think of salvation past, present, and future. And it's important that we do that. It's important not to let yourself slip into a truncated, like small view of salvation where any of those aspects uh, becomes the only one. I won't. It's been time thinking about what kind of errors develop if you only think of salvation in terms of the past, if you only think about it in terms of the future, if you only think about it in terms of the here and now. Things get wonky. Things get wonky. Without all three, we miss out on the big, glorious picture of what Jesus is up to. So all that said, all that said, that's a long-winded way to, to, to create a space here that when we come to a phrase like what Paul has, working out your own salvation, we're not scandalized by it. We don't go, whoa, 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 that, that's destroying my, my theology or, you know, what would Martin Luther say about that or whatever? No, we have space for this. It's that present tense sense of salvation. It's, it's to work out your salvation is, is to let both what Christ has already done for you and what he promises to do one day when to bring it completion, to let those two realities bleed out into your present actual day-to-day -day life and relationships. To not be content to say, yeah, that was a great and beautiful thing that happened in the past, and it's going to be great in the future, but to say, he's actually up to something in my life right now. Right now. He's saving me right now, we could even say. To speak of working out your salvation is to speak of living more and more and more and more in line with your salvation in your present, day-to-day, -day, flesh and blood life and relationships. 
And he gives us, he gives us one way of thinking about this. And so what do, what do you mean? Well, he's already given us a clue back in verse 12. He, he introduced the word obedience, which has got to be one of the most encouraging and energizing words in the English language in all of theology. We love thinking about obedience, don't we, especially in Portland. What is obedience? Well, it's doing, it, it's really simple. It's really simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. Obedience is just doing what he asked you to do and not doing what he asked you not to do. That's kind of it. Do the things he asked you to do. Don't do the things he asked you not to do. But, but obedience is more than, it's, it's of course meant to be more than just, you know, a checklist of do's and don'ts. Jesus, in his own words, in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So fundamentally, obedience isn't just an abstract rule checklist. It's fundamentally, when we're thinking rightly about it, it's an expression of our love for our God. To say, I love you and I trust you and I trust that what, what you are holding up for me actually is for my good because you love me. And thank you for loving me. Thank you for telling me the truth. Thank you for calling me into greater and greater health and flourishing. So working out your salvation, we could, we could just give it the, the simplest summary to say it's about obedience. It's being obedient. It's doing the things God's asking you to do out of a, out of a motivation of loving gratitude towards our God. Um, we can also talk about it as, as what we've already said, change and, and formation and transformation. We could think of it as, as becoming who you've already been declared to be in fits and starts. And he says as well, to, to, to work it out with fear and trembling. This isn't something we can just discard. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, for, that's just for the legalists or that's just for kind of uptight Christians or whatever. That, that, that phrase with fear and trembling is inviting us to see the gravity, the gravity of this. Working out our salvation is not just an optional idea. This is serious, serious business at the heart of following, following Jesus. So to sum all this up, I, 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 the, the language I'm using here, and it's not nothing, you know, it's not maybe even the ideal language, but we'll use it, is that we must become learners. And the reason I don't use the word disciples here is because I, I, I want to reserve that as kind of more of the overarching category under which like our identity is family, brothers and sisters, and next week we're going to talk about our identity as witnesses, witnesses to those outside the community. Those things are huge parts of discipleship as well. So we'll let that be the overarching umbrella term. Um, we could just as easily say doers to emphasize the action side of this. We, we could take a page from our friends over at Bridgetown who use the word apprentice or apprentices. Those are all good. For now, we'll say learners, those who are committed to the teachings of our great teacher God who came in the flesh as Jesus Christ who revealed himself through the scriptures co-authored by the Holy Spirit and who continues to teach us today now that he indwells us. And when we say learners, I just want to make this as crystal clear as I can. We have to fight against any idea that this simply means maintaining true facts in our minds. That's not what I mean. I don't just mean becoming some sort of theological encyclopedia or whatever. The kind of learning we have in mind is the kind that Jesus had in mind for his disciples. It's the kind that affects the head, your mind, your ideas, yes, 
but it's the kind that bleeds down into your heart, the deepest places of your affections and your will, and it bleeds out into your hands as well. What you actually do day to day. Faith, after all, James tell us, tells us, faith without works is dead. It starts here, and here comes out here. If we're missing any part of that, it's, uh, it's, it's not the fullness of what the New Testament picture is painting. So work out your salvation. That's, that's point one. Point two is this. Point two is this. The second main idea is that God is already working in and through you. Yeah, that's an easy verse to read, to kind of read over and skim over, verse 13, but the profundity is, is absolutely wild. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Four, because it is God who works in you, both to will, like God working to change your will, and to work, God, God at work to make you work, to make you act for his good pleasure. This is incredible. What this is telling us is that change, this increasing sense of working out your salvation, actually letting it come out through who you are and what you do, not just what you know, is fundamentally a work of the God that we're partnered with in this task. Whatever we do is secondary to what he's already up to and doing. That's what this is claiming. And that's a wild claim. And this is different than sort of a, the 90s kind of let go and let God, where, where we don't have anything to do uh, in, in, in this. You know, we're just, we're just kind of passive bystanders. I mean, we're meant to be yielded to the Spirit, of course, but uh, he tells us to work. He tells us to act. For God's already working. God's already acting. So it's different from that. And, and it's also not, not kind of the, the divine watchmaker thing of the deists where God has kind of saved us and he's kind of tuned things up so that we can follow him. And then he says, okay, I'm out. You take it from here. That'd be the other error here, that, salvation, that working out our salvation is all our work, that we just, we just got to white knuckle it and do it and figure it out. It's neither of those extremes. We work out of his work. This is, I heard one preacher call this grace-driven effort. Yes, we strive. But that striving is contextualized, it's, it's, it's scaffolded, it's built on the foundation of that grace we already talked about. So you're not, you're not afraid of losing anything, of losing relationship with God. Grace undergirds it all. So what Paul's getting at here is that the fundamental driver of change in your life and in my life is God. And, and if I could bring a little more specificity to it, to how it works, I would say, the way I would articulate it is I, I think it's experiences with God. What do I mean by that? Well, um, there, there are a handful of, so some of you know, my, wife, my wife's a counselor, and she's very smart, and I, you know, I try to, I try to draft ideas off of her and learn from what she's learning and what, what she's experiencing. Um, there are a lot of helpful things as a pastor to being, about being married to a therapist. Um, our poor children, though. Uh, <laughs> our poor, poor children. They're in for it. Um, but various counseling models, including, including one called emotionally focused therapy, I, 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 it, it's been incredibly effective, especially in working with couples. EFT would say this, and you can agree or disagree with, with them, but they say 
change comes through the formulation and expression of new emotional experiences. So instead of just trying to give you new information, instead of trying to help you see, oh, well, this is really the thing, or maybe you should change your thinking pattern this way or that way, they want to help you experience new things in, this, in the session. Experience it for yourself, especially with your, with your spouse, that can actually start giving you the confidence that things can be different, start training you how to, how to build these new habits and patterns, so on and so forth. I think it's similar. You want to change? I think the New Testament tells us this. Commune with God. Or, or Jesus, John 15, abide in me. Abide, make your home, remain, stay connected to me. The vine and the branches. Or what we've been talking about for, for a couple months now in the Holy Spirit, be filled with and walk in step with the Spirit. Be with the God who has already loved you and saved you by grace. I think that's the ticket, friends, if you want to change, and I hope that you do. So how do we make space and time for relationship with this God, for experiences with this God? Well, one way, historically, the church has, has gone about this is by saying through what we call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. In each of these, we have a chance each time we show up to encounter God and have our hearts changed. Spiritual disciplines are, this is crucial, spiritual disciplines are opportunities, are opportunities for these experiences with God, not the ends in themselves. That's a crucial, like, gospel-fortifying distinction right there. You could, you could half-heartedly, half-paying-attentionly read, you know, read your Bible and not encounter God. By the same token, if it is true that the Bible is the Word of God, and I certainly would say it is, then every time you come attentively to it, you are hearing God. You are hearing the words of God. So spiritual disciplines are opportunities for these experiences, not the ends and of themselves. But the end result is the same in terms of practice. We should be disciplining ourselves these ways. We should be risking our time and our energy to step into contact with God as often as we can. Together, like here, and alone. And let me hear, say this too. He can and does show up without us doing a thing. We're not trying to put God in a box. He's not dependent on you doing anything. To, if he decides he wants to show up, he'll show up. He will show up. So make space for that as well. But to embrace a life of pursuing him is to say, for my part, I'm not going to leave you alone, God. Here I am. Here I am. And the call to Door of Hope Northeast is to commit to being with God and allowing him to transform us. Amen? So practical application. Um, gosh, may we become a people who, who give ourselves again to, to as what we termed, you know, a, a year plus ago, disciplines of grace, together and alone. These spiritual disciplines, they are, A, opportunities to be with God. They are expressions of our love for God. And then third, they are habit-forming practices that reinforce themselves, and, and the cruci crucially, they reinforce number one and two all over again, over time. Ideally, we, we, we build these into our lives habitually that we might seek out again and again and again opportunities to be with God and express our love to Him. 
So what are some good ones? I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens across church history that, that believers have found helpful. Uh, last year, we, we just we looked at five. So let's start simple. Five that we said were perhaps the most central and foundational. We talked about prayer. Prayer. Do you pray? How's your prayer life in the pandemic? Mine was maybe the worst it's ever been, ironically. Isn't that weird? So desperate, so alone, relatively so much free time, so much anxiety, struggling to pray. You pray. You pray simply. You pray daily. Scripture. Is the Bible a part of your life? If you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, do you, do you make time to regularly read the Word? And I can take all, I, it probably should at different times, take different forms. That could be, you know, reading long passages, you know, try to read the Bible in a year or whatever, or study, just taking one book or even one passage and really just studying it deeply, getting the commentaries out, wrestling through it in community with a few friends, you know, for a month or two months or three months, just really diving in deeply in the study side. Maybe it's the more meditation side taking one sentence or one phrase and just turning it over and over and over in your, in your mind and asking God to plant it deeply inside. Bible, scripture disciplines, they're, they're, they're countless. But are you pursuing him in his word? Third one we said, we, we often don't think of this one as a discipline, but I think we ought to, was community. And I won't belabor that since we spent all last week trying to make the case for why community is crucial. Uh, but it's a spiritual discipline. God wants us to be in such proximity to one another that we are sharpening one another, encouraging one another, scaffolding one another. And it's a discipline to just make the space to be here Sunday morning, to be in small groups together, to be proactive and reaching out to people, inviting them into your lives, starting new opportunities. Hey, let's read a book together. Let's study a book of the Bible together. Let's do this or that together. Let's start a prayer group, whatever it is. It takes discipline. But it's one of the great and most fruit-bearing spiritual disciplines, I think. Another one we mentioned was service. Stretching beyond what's natural and comfortable, taking the form, as Jesus did, of a servant towards those around us. That can happen both inside the church and, and to the world outside. And then we talked about witness or evangelism, sharing the good news, being bold about Jesus because we love him and because we love people and we don't want them to be without him. We want to bring our loves together play matchmaker. We're going to talk more about that next week, so I won't belabor that. So that's, that's not all that could be said about working out your salvation or, or, or working alongside this God who's already at, at work in us. I just, I just want to leave you with this. I believe we change by encounters with the living God. And it is way, 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 way too easy for us to go days and weeks and months and years without pursuing him in any meaningful way. Thank God there's grace. He still loves you. He loves you no less, no less. If you haven't come to him in 10 years, praise God for his loving grace and mercy. But there is so much we leave on the table, friends. There's so much we leave on the table if we don't, if we don't come after him. These are some ways we can try to partner in what he's already doing in our lives. Third point, third point, final point, probably the briefest, is the what for. 
And we, there are many reasons we could say why. Why work out our salvation? Why commit to this work of being transformed? Why keep coming day after day to encounter God, to be with him, to be changed by him over time? Why? Well, one reason, here's just one. We're not going to say this is the end-all be-all, but this was, this was a, a really compelling one for me to see in here. I wanted to share it today. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling. So this is just continuing the theme. So he's kind of ap- applying, okay, what, what are some things he has in mind? He says, well, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Apparently the Philippian church was a, they're a bit grumbly, a bit grumbly. Don't grumble, don't dispute, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Listen to this. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, one of the purposes given here, he says, he says, do this in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that can sound awfully churchy, you know? A crooked and twisted generation. That's not exactly how I would address my neighbors or whatever. (laughs) Did you know that you are a a vital part of this crooked and twisted generation. You read that and then perhaps it sounds unloving, perhaps it sounds overly harsh. Um, Paul was writing about his day. You think that applies to our day? It applies to every day. It applies to every day. Every day has, uh, in God's grace, it, I, I, good things worth celebrating, but every day has its own and every culture has its own horrible vices and destructive habits and ways in which we just, we just profane the good world that God has made. And ours is no different. Ours is no different. Our city, in fact, for one, has been crying out with its own version of this declaration for years, bemoaning very real injustices that take place. What, what are those cries except for a call for somebody, anybody, to make things right. Things are not well in our world. Things are not well in the city of Portland. Lots of people can name that. We're in the midst of every generation, which is a crooked and twisted generation. But look what he says. That's the generation, but among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, so what Paul is saying is that, that the, the people of God, this church, and of course it applies to us and our church now, is meant to, to live in contrast to, to the generation and to the world we find ourselves in. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to have the flavor, the aroma of Jesus. And get this, friends, it's not for condescension. It's not to say, oh, the world out there is horrible. These horrible people. Who could possibly love these people? The God of the universe loves these people. And the very same things that we look and point to others and say, oh, that's horrible. That's in us. That's in us. This isn't for condescension. This isn't for for lording our salvation or or our own righteousness over anybody else. If we're honest, most of us don't have have much to lord over anybody else. No, he says it's it's not that. 
It's to shine as lights in the world. It, 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 the image is almost of like stars shining at nighttime. It's word, that word for light is used in that context quite a bit. Almost picture it as like, as like lights guiding sailors. You, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, being transformed more and more into his image and likeness, are to be a light meant to help and guide your neighbors, to serve and love them, to point them to the source of all goodness and beauty and truth. This isn't detached kind of condescension. This is a loving embrace, looking different from the world for the good of the world, that it might know its king, its savior that loves it. Amen? And not just to those out there, but to you, as we talked about last week, to you here, that you become the kind of person that can be a light to the person sitting next to you, whether you know them or not yet. You're going to get to know them over these coming years that you can point them again and again and again and again, even if they've been walking with Jesus longer than you have, you can play a role in pointing them back to this Jesus that loves us. As lights shining. This is not for condescension, but for hope and joy and salvation and flourishing and peace and shalom. That's what this is for. This is for being the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we are. Are for God's glory, first and foremost, for your own good, because whatever he declares, whatever he commands of you, it is for your good and your flourishing too. Do you believe that? And then third, for your neighbor's blessing, both in this church and outside. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of being, of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we conclude here. We, we return to our opening question. What, what does the world need? Um, I, saw, I saw a meme the other day. Uh, me, memes are becoming a, a oddly, uh, oddly effective little vehicles for a theology um, in certain circles. I saw one that took, uh, you remember Amy Poehler's character from Mean Girls? Remember her? It's like one of my favorite comedy characters ever. If you haven't seen Mean Girls, uh, it's hilarious. But she, she's a mom. She's always wearing like a pink juicy suit. You know, what's, what, it's like a velvet tracksuit. Um, and she's like always got a martini in her hand. And her daughter, her daughter's like the coolest kid in the school, the most popular girl. And she brings her friends over. And you meet, you meet Amy Poehler's character. And she's just like schmoozing them and stuff. She's like, girls, tell me the gossip and all that stuff. And then she, goes, she tells the new friend, there are no rules in this house. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm the cool mom. And she's like, I'm not like a regular mom. I'm the cool mom. Later, she's like, she brings them like mocktails. And they're like, there's not alcohol in this. And she's like, no, no, of course not. What kind of mother would I be? Unless you want some. I'd rather you drink here than out there. Very, very cool mom. The meme I saw took that, took her. And it said, I'm not like a regular Christian. I'm a cool Christian. <laughs> and I thought, there, there is something profound there. Because we, we, I think in Portland, it's easy to think, um, you know, we're, we're living in a world that that's values in, in many ways are more acutely contrasted with our faith than, say, if we lived elsewhere, at least some places. And it's, we foolishly can think that pursuing just kind of inoffensive, cool Christianity is going to bring revival. 
we, we sort of think like, oh, if I can, you know, just not dress as lame as the, the TV preacher I see, or if I, if I like the cool movies and the cool music and whatever, then people out there, are, they're going to be really drawn to Jesus, <laughs> as if anybody cares, if anybody cares. I say like what you like, like what you like, don't think too hard about it. But we foolishly think condescending about other kinds of Christians is some kind of viable alternative to loving and serving our neighbor, to proclaiming the good news with words, and yes, to being formed into the image of Christ more and more, whereby we display the fruit of his spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The world does not need us to be cool Christians. It doesn't need us to be anything except connected vitally to our king and filled with his spirit. Filled with his spirit living more and more in step with him. Even as we acknowledge we are gonna fail, that is why grace has to undergird all this or else this becomes crushing. But if he is gracious fundamentally and he loves us through our failings and he, he loves us through our step backs, he loves us through it all, then we have the confidence to keep coming to him, to keep coming to him. Even after the day of our worst failure, to keep coming back to him, to meet with him and to be changed that time a little bit more by a fresh encounter. My concern is that similarly to how these past couple years of like, pandemic life have formed us away from communal life together, they've also formed us away from a commitment to allowing God to transform us and to working alongside him for that purpose. Have you become lax in striving to live out your call to be transformed and to grow into maturity? I have. Has the pandemic given you subtle permission to put your sanctification on pause? then the call is to hit unpause. The call is to hit unpause. The call is to pick up the pursuit of him again, not out of legalism, but driven by his grace. I want you to see the beauty of Jesus, to fall in love with him, to see him not just as true, though that's important, but also as beautiful and as good at the deepest possible level. That way, whatever struggles, whatever struggles you have, you'll at least want to be transformed by him and into his image. So that we may love God first. Again, you love him, keep his commandments, obey him. So we can express our love and our gratitude to him in obedience, but that we also may love our brothers and sisters in this church and our neighbors outside of this church, expressing that love by becoming people increasingly shaped by the life and teaching and values and love of Jesus. May we become his hands and feet in this world. We're not going to solve every world problem, but we can be a part of just this taste of what life is going to be like when the kingdom comes in full. Amen? So may, may we love ourselves as well by giving ourselves over to God's purposes for our lives, for his vision of health, his vision of flourishing, his vision of wholeness, his vision of maturity, trusting that any other road we're going to pursue is going to lead to heartbreak, it's going to lead to broken promises, it's going to lead ultimately to death. But it is not so with Jesus, the author and perfecter of life and of our faith. Let's pray.